Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have another full cycle entrepreneur that has done it multiple times. I think that we're gonna learn quite a bit, you know, many, many lessons learned along the way and, and many lessons that I think are going to inspire us all that are gonna be listening here. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Brad Hargraves. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you so much for having me here. Excited to be here. So how was life growing up in rural Arkansas? <laughs> it was boring. I wanted out. Uh, yeah, no better reason. I mean, boredom is the fuel of creativity. And uh, there, there, there are not many places to be boring. I think we pack our kids' lives with too much shit today, you know? Too many activities, too many things to do. Uh, but when you're in, in the middle of nowhere, uh, it's about 90 miles south of Little Rock, uh, nothing. There was one red light in the entire county. Uh, there's nothing to do. And I think that that is a real inspiration for creativity and made me more entrepreneurial. Um, fortunately, I had parents that were really supportive and supported my education and, uh, you know, supported me getting out of there. Um, but, yeah, I think boring and, and, and that's not a bad thing. And how did you get that influence in this, the entrepreneurial bug and, and that mindset of, of really putting a solution into whatever problem you have in front of you? Was there anyone in your family or how did that develop? Yeah. I mean, my, my, my grandfather, my, my, my mother's father is an entrepreneur. Um, you know, not like a tech or venture entrepreneur. He runs a chain of, uh, auto parts stores and auto parts distributors. Um, so I do have that in my blood. I do have that, uh, that influence and, and that inspiration. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I got to, I went to Yale, I got, I got there and, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do something different. And, you know, you have a lot of kids there, particularly back when I was there back in 2004, uh, that they want to be bankers, they want to be consultants. And these were worlds, the worlds of banking, consulting, private equity were completely foreign uh, to me as a kid from rural Arkansas. But, uh, you know, I knew startups, I knew entrepreneurship, I knew that's something I wanted to do. And how did you know that you wanted to study molecular biology and <laughs> economics? What a combination. Well, you know, the economics came later. The, the, you know, the way you get out of a place like rural Arkansas is you enter a lot of science competitions and just, you know, academic competitions in general. I mean, I, I'm, I'm 
I'm 6'1 and 145 pounds, so I definitely wasn't playing football. Um, right. And the only pass out of a place like that are, are you either you either play football or you know you get into the the academic competition circuit. And 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 so I, I traveled all over the place. I went to uh, you know went to Australia, went to a bunch of different places in the U.S um on these on these competitions on these uh just entering every contest i could find um and it definitely gave me a lot of exposure um and you know really kind of introduced me to worlds outside the fairly narrow one i grew up in and that you know because a lot of those were science related i got into science um and that was my initial major in college i think as i Spent some summers working in the lab, uh, you know, counting microscopic worms and uh, culturing bacteria and doing the things people do in a lab. I realized that is not how I wanted to spend my life. <laughs> I, was, right. I, was, I was way more interested in, like, the lab materials and the reagents. And I was like, oh, somebody makes this stuff. Like, that's a business. That's interesting. So then let's talk about making stuff. Because obviously this led you into doing your own, your own business, your first business, the game studio. Yeah. So... Uh, I've always been into games. I've 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 built games. Um, you know, part of uh, being being bored in the middle of nowhere is is you do things like that. So, um, my very first venture was a game um, that kind of took a a, a concept um, out of the college campus, um, which is this is competitive online game, um, and and tried to bring it broader um, to tap into rivalries uh, and use that as a driver for gameplay and engagement. So as super casual games, things that you might play on your mobile phone, but were tapped into a network of rivalries. So you're playing against a group of people, say, from a rival school. Um, got a huge amount of, uh, of, of, of play. Um, we ran an annual competition between the, uh, the, all the Ivy league schools, for instance, I think at one point we got like 25% of the whole Ivy league, like every student playing simultaneously. This is back in 2006. Um, never figured out how to make money from it. Uh, it wasn't the kind of game you charge money for. And, and back then this was kind of pre micro payments, pre, uh, in-game items. I mean, it was even, you know, not just pre apple app store it was also pre facebook games you know facebook was still literally a facebook for college kids back then um so you didn't quite have the same platforms and monetization channels uh so as as fun and crazy as that was building game development studio in college we ended up raising some venture money um unfortunately got crushed in the uh in the downturn in 2008 uh and had to wind that down so what was that process like? Because obviously on, on those type of um, events is where you learn the most. Yeah, and it was, it, it was an experience I, I never, ever want to repeat. And it was really seared into me, the pain of having to wind that down, let people go. Uh, and, you know, I did this. I, I, was, I was 22 when we wound the company down. And it was extraordinarily painful. And, 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 you know, some lessons and a lot of lessons you learn as an entrepreneur aren't necessarily, you know, do this, don't do that, but rather experiences that inform what you, the decisions you make in the future. Um, and I think I'm, I'm on the spectrum of entrepreneurs relatively conservative today. 
because I had that early experience of, you know, having the crazy college startup, having it blow up and saying, you know, never again. That's that's not an experience I want to relive. So was there like one specific lesson that you knew that for whatever company you would start next, you would definitely take that with you? Well, it has to make money is the first thing is like, you don't, you know, the problem with that company is, is, is we set out and we said, oh, we're going to do X, which is build popular games. And then it's like the old meme. It's like, I'm going to do something. And then there's question marks. And then the last step is profit. Um, that was kind of our business model. And Uh, that was also a business model or, or lack thereof du jour back then. I mean, this was in the days of, 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 of Facebook, which at the time had no business model, um, you know, growing and, you know, a never, ever higher valuation. I just looked at that and said, that is not the kind of business I want to build. That's not a match with who I am. And the next business I'm going to go out and I'm going to build, it's going to be, we're, we're going to do a And A makes money. It's not A turns to B and then B turns to C and then maybe that makes money. Uh, you know, that unit economics are fundamental. They're really fundamental. It was very hard to maintain that discipline through the last 10 years. I mean, we went through, you know, 11 years of uninterrupted bull market from 2009 to uh, the second quarter of 2020. And I can get more into that, but it's it's just it was tough to maintain good unit economic discipline through that. But I'm 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 glad I've done that, and I have through the businesses I've built. So obviously, this was a major lesson, uh, and uh, then you happen to find yourself in New York City, meeting a lot of people, and that was the segue to your next business. So tell us about it. Yeah, so I found myself uh, with with without a job, uh, without any money, um, living in New York. Uh, with roommates um, in 2009 and really started getting into the tech scene. I uh, did, some, did some contract work, did some consulting, uh, did some analyst work at a venture fund for a little while. Um, and it was pretty clear that there was, there, there, was, there was something percolating in the New York tech scene that you know, people were starting interesting companies. Um, you know, there was a real demand for technical talent, demand for creative talent. Um, and, you know, we got together with a couple of friends, um, one of whom I, I believe Adam Pritzker has been on your show before, um, yeah. and decided to start what was initially conceived of as, as, as a hub for New York city tech. Um, there would be a, a co-working component, um, a really, I would say at the time, very high end co-working component, um, Which, which, you know, co-working back in 2010 pretty much meant, uh, you know, either cubicles or, you know, Ikea desks on a floor. There was no, this was pre-WeWork, uh, you know, pre-industrious, you know, this is, co-working was, was, was in a nascent phase. So we'd have some of that for, for startups. Um, we would have some event space and we would host hackathons and we would host, um, you know, big like job fairs for tech and things like that. And then we'd have a classroom. So we started doing these, these classes and they would vary, uh, you know, every night we would try something new. So one night we would have a kind of introduction to JavaScript and talk about, you know, the JavaScript technology really just, 
not so someone could build in it, but just so they could talk about it. We, we, we joked cocktail party level knowledge of JavaScript. Um, the next night we would have a discussion about uh, accounting, you know, for a startup. Um, so some of it was startup oriented. Um, some of it was just, just more pure technical knowledge. We would run a digital marketing course, which appealed to people who weren't even in the startup world. Like we would get people from digital agencies that would come and say, you know, we need to, 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 to think about how we upskill for the new world of social media marketing, which was very nascent at the time back in 2011. Um, so over time and, 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 and by time, I mean like a matter of months, the educational piece became the business. We introduced, we went from one class a night to two classes a night. We introduced weekend courses. Uh, we introduced, you know, daytime workshops where people would, would, would get their employers to pay. Um, and before we knew it, this like 400 square foot classroom was generating more revenue than the rest of the 16,000 square foot space combined. It went from zero to over a million in revenue in like four months. And so that's when we said, oh, wait, we're, we're on to something here. So then, I mean, quite, quite onto something, because literally in four months, you went from zero to a million in revenues without raising any money. I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, well, it was, we, we, we got the, I would say we got the timing perfect. And we really had developed this model of tailoring education to a, a practical outcome. And we started thinking about this concept of outcomes very, very early. That it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't whatever the, the instructor wanted to teach. It wasn't what got the most clicks. It was like, what's actually going to generate a meaningful outcome for the student? Think, thinking, thinking ontologically about it. Like, you know, what, what, is, what does the student want from this? And how do we fulfill that objective in... 90 minutes, in four hours, in eventually 12 weeks. So we realized that, the, 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 that the, the, the real goal, that the holy grail was to get people jobs, was to take someone who had never coded before and say, you are going to get a junior level job in web development, UX design, digital marketing, data science. We started rolling out these 12-week courses and that became the core of the business. Um, and as we grew over the next eight years, uh, you know, we became the one, the largest trade school uh, in the U.S. teaching tech, tech business and design, um, but also uh, built a significant enterprise business where companies, I mentioned earlier about digital marketing, we had you know, people from agencies coming to us saying, hey, we need, to, we need to upskill here. We need to learn and understand the latest technology, the latest trends. Um, and that became a really big part of the business. That was the first part of the business to move online. Uh, consumers stayed brick and mortar for quite a while. Um, and eventually that was, uh, I think, the, the single largest piece of enterprise value that we built was our, uh, was our enterprise um, training and certifications business. 
And what was the um, what was the process of really scaling this? Because I mean, scaling this, I'm sure it was a beast. So what was that like? Yeah. So uh, between yeah between General Assembly and Common, uh, which I'll, which I'll talk about in a bit, um, you know, I've 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 definitely shown myself to have a bit of uh, schlep blindness. Um, I think that's a that's a Paul Graham term of just doing the hard thing. These are not easy businesses to scale. Uh, you know, with General Assembly, obviously, you know, it is it is a brick and mortar business at the core. You do have physical classrooms with physical seats. Um, it's a it's a tricky business in some ways because you know a lot of your costs are are fixed. The space is fixed. You know, once you decide to launch a course, you know, you have to hire the instructors. Um, the, the the product development is pretty fixed, and then obviously you try to get as many uh, you know butts and seats as possible, um, and every incremental one is just pure uh, contribution, pure margin. Um, so you have to clear a certain threshold to break even on the course, uh, and then you have targets you have to hit, and you have to hit those targets every single quarter. Um, so it's a tough business in that way. It's very unforgiving. Um, the enterprise business, which we, we we shifted to over time, it's more forgiving in that um, not that the clients are more forgiving. The clients are, if any, if anything, more demanding. But it's more forgiving in that you know you have longer term contracts, you have subscription revenue, um, you uh, you have more predictability. It's not like oh every quarter you have to hit uh, a very specific sales goal. Um, you still have sales goals, you still have to hit them, but the vast majority of your revenue in any given quarter was signed several quarters ago uh, because it's recurring in that way. So the enterprise business, it's, 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 as, we, as we shifted over time, is, 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 um, it's tougher, it takes longer to grow in some ways, but it's also more forgiving and it's a bit less of a schlep. And obviously the the rest is history. I mean, for this, the company raised the, a little bit over a hundred million, and then it was acquired by Adeco, the Adeco Group, for about four hundred million. So pretty, pretty good outcome. So, uh, so Brad, so what happened next for you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a great outcome. Um, was was acquired by Adeco Group um, for a bit north of four hundred million, and um, you know, I for the past five and a half years been working on um, my next venture, which is Common. Um, started Common, um, which which it seems like a crazy pivot. It's it's actually um, it's a housing company, and we are really focused on innovative forms of housing, things like co living, like micro apartments, um, and also how the question of how do you apply technology to residential design and management. Um, so we, it seems like a crazy pivot, as I said, because, you know, going from education to real estate. Um, and in some ways it is, but in other ways it's not. You know, when you think about, you know, what do people spend a lot of money on? Um, you know, a young person moving to a city, you know, what are their biggest areas of consumer spend? Um, it's really education and housing. Um, they're also both areas that for that level of consumer spend, for the level of importance that we give them, um, really have not seen a lot of innovation with respect to new products, new brands, technology. Uh, they tend to be two areas that kind of ignore best practice uh, from user experience design. 
Um, and so there, there's, there's an opportunity to, you know, take not kind of totally novel hard technology, but take, you know, fairly proven technology, proven strategies, and apply it and get a meaningful operating lift and create a better consumer experience. And that's what we did in both companies. In General Assembly, you know, creating a brand in, in, in basically trade education um, and common, um, bringing a brand to, or now a family of brands, we have three brands, um, to residential management. Uh, but it's always backed by kind of the same core principles, community, convenience, um, and also our, our residential technology platform. So uh, that's, uh, that's been my focus for the past, uh, past five years. Today we have uh, about 4,000 apartment units under management, about 20,000 uh, currently under construction um, in 30-ish cities worldwide. So how do you guys make money with Common? Yeah, so it's, it's really simple. Uh, we're a management business. So we partner with owners and developers, and we do two things. We do uh, design, um, which is effectively we're, we're, we're an architecture firm with a little bit more uh, templatization. Um, and we do management. And the management is really where the technology and the brands come into play. Um, so when someone hires Common, it's not like hiring a typical third-party property manager that's going to come in and do the leasing, do the repairs and maintenance. You're really bringing an entire platform. Um, you're bringing the brand. You're bringing the marketing technology. You're bringing, uh, we have a centralized operating model um, where we're taking a lot of best practices from other industries and then we're bringing them into residential in a way that... Uh, lifts performance of buildings, um, and creates more standardized and consistent customer experience. Um, a lot of the stuff, it's, it's pretty incredible that, 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 that hasn't been brought into, uh, residential. I mean, when we started this business in 2015, um, a lot of management companies were still doing pen and paper lease signing. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of them were still, you know, not taking electronic rent payments. A lot of that has changed over the past five years, um, but now you look at the next set of things. There are a lot of, you know, management companies that are not doing virtual touring, um, that are not letting people um, apply remotely, that are not adding automations to those processes. So we're we're really thinking about how do we apply best in class technology to residential management. So I know that in the early days you were told no quite a bit. Brad, yeah. so uh, so tell us. I mean, obviously, this was your third venture, so you were used to 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 the word no. But how how did you you know go about it? Yeah, you got to get used to no, and uh, you know this this was interesting because you know at Common we're obviously working with developers and owners, so we have to get them on board with doing things differently. And and and, and residential, I would say, even more so than education. Um, there's a lot of resistance to change. There's a lot of resistance to doing things differently, particularly on the operations side. There's a big, uh, I would say, bias, which is was way stronger five years ago than it is today, um, that you can't add any value through operations, that the only way you can create value as a residential developer is through, you know, being better on the acquisition side, uh, innovative uh, tax and finance strategies, like that's how you create value. The operations, you just, you know, it's a commodity. 
And we really believe that that's not true. I mean, it's, 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 it's actually, it's, it's kind of an insane thing to believe. You look at every other industry and obviously good operations are not just value add, they're, they're definitive. Um, they determine the winners and losers. And in residential that, you know, in re- real estate in general, particularly in residential, that, that was just not a thing. Um, so we got told no a lot. You know, one of my favorite stories is walking into one uh, developer's office, you know, talking about some of the things we were doing, co-living, micro-apartments, ways to add value to, 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 to ground-up buildings. And he looked at, you know, this developer looked at me, he said, Brad, I don't build what the tenant wants, I build what the bank wants. And that's, that was, that's, that runs deep. And it took us a while to understand that, you know, really to how we start scaling and how we start winning is to get the banks on board and to get them to understand like, oh, wow, you're actually adding a lot of value with what you're doing. You're differentiating these assets. Um, So that was quite a journey and it's, it's taken five years, but, you know, we've uh, seen a ton of growth over the past 18 months. And talking about you know supporting that growth and 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 scaling. I mean, for that you need money. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, so we've raised around a hundred million. Um, we have some great investors on board. You know, we raised our first round from a group called Maveron. Um, they're Seattle-based venture firm started by Dan Levitan and Howard Schultz, um, and they were actually the first money into General Assembly. Um, so I've known them for about a decade. Um, really founder friendly group. They're, you know, we, we, we raised in common for common, we raised kind of, you know, back of the envelope, like, Hey, this is generally what we want to do. Uh, we had no prototype. We had basically a, 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 a deck of like, this is what we want to go after. And, <laughs> you know, at that stage, um, you know, the kind of investor, you know, in general, I don't think you want VCs on your board. Like, unless you know them, you have a personal relationship and, 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 and you're aligned and, and, and you know that they're going to be supportive through the inevitable ups and downs of the journey. Um, and fortunately, I had that faith in Maveron, particularly in Jason Stouffer, who's a partner there. Um, and that really, uh, that really got me comfortable with taking that money in those early days. And obviously, they've you know, now seen it through uh, three additional uh, financing rounds, including our latest one, which we just announced a couple months ago, led by Shinovic, uh, which is a Stockholm-based growth equity investor. Very nice. Very nice. And, and now, how many, how many employees do you guys have? We're at about 250 employees, and that's split about 50-50 between our corporate team, so our real estate team, our designers and architects, our, you know, all of our, our software engineers, our corporate staff on one side, um, and the other side is our field staff, our, our, our maintenance techs, our porters, our leasing agents, all of whom are full-time employees. So I think that the, um, you know, one thing that is interesting here is, is kind of like where things are heading. You know, I love to hear like, where do you see, you know, the space, you know, and, and where do you think that common is heading? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's a really interesting inflection point right now, because obviously, uh, COVID has, has done all sorts of crazy things to the real estate market. Um, people have 
you know, left cities in pretty, pretty large numbers. Um, I think for some of those cities, such as, New, such as, you know, San Francisco, to a lesser extent, New York, you know, it's unclear how quickly those cities are going to recover. Um, on the other hand, it's, it's put a huge premium on quality management, on uh, technology in management. I mean, thank God, you know, we had virtual touring as a core capability back in March when COVID hit. Uh, about 30% of our tenants were converting through a virtual tour alone. Um, and then we just flipped a switch and it was 100% because we stopped doing in-person tours. For other management companies, that took them months to figure out how to do virtual tours. So we already had that muscle memory. And now, you know, what I said, you know, five minutes ago about, you know, the real estate industry not believing you could add value through operations, you know, that myth went out the window in March. Suddenly, operations were everything. Operations were the difference between, you know, are you going to keep your building or is the bank going to take it? Uh, so suddenly, like, all this changed, and we've seen a huge amount of interest from the market in what we're doing on the management side um, and feeling really good about where we're headed there. And for you, Brad, it's been a remarkable entrepreneurial journey. I would say there's one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show that I'd like to ask you here. And it's, you know, given given what you've gone through, I mean, with your studio uh, game company, with General Assembly, now with Common, I mean, you've seen the good, the bad and the ugly of building, scaling and, and, and everything, you know, above when it comes to, to startups. So if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, maybe it was that younger Brad that realized that it was more interesting making the making of the machines rather than using them uh, back in back in yeah like what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before you would launch a company and why given what you know now oh wow that's tough um you know i wish in many cases i'd i'd trusted my gut um I think there were a lot of things that I knew to be the case and probably either took too long to make a decision or, you know, doubted, um, where it just, that burnt a lot of time and burnt a lot of money. Um, so, you know, changes we, we, you know, we knew back in the game development studio that like we needed to come up with a way to, to make money. Um, but obviously it was, I would say, more acceptable back then to, to, to not make money. And I remember once, you know, we had, we had a couple of angel investors and they once said like, well, don't, don't, don't try to make money unless you know you're going to make a lot of money because it's better to make mo no money than to make a little bit of money. And that kind of struck me as crazy at the time. And now it still strikes me as crazy. And we should have probably just gone ahead and done whatever experiments we were going to do. Um, so I wish I had trusted my gut in a few more of those instances. Very profound, Brad. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. And for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, just email me, brad at common.com, or follow me on Twitter at bhargraves. That's B-H-A-R-G-R-E-A-V-E-S. Amazing. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. 
Great. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.